Well, I'm guessing that the majority of you do not lift weights, uh, and I hope that that's not offensive for me to say that. Um, Either way, you probably know that in order to build muscle, you need to tear it, and tearing hurts. It can be quite painful, and this morning may feel like a painful workout, um, because the topic of our sinfulness is really heavy lifting. But I am confident that it can build your spiritual muscles. Why are true Christians so excited about Jesus? Isn't it because they know how sinful they are and how much they need Jesus? People who see themselves as essentially good overlook their need for Jesus. And therefore don't really grasp why he is so exciting. And though it may seem counterintuitive, struggling uh, openly with the painful reality of our sinfulness can and often does increase our joy in Christ because the struggle should push us to Him. Our current series entitled Foundations is following a really simple outline that you'll see in your notes, God, Man, Jesus, response. I should have told you this earlier at the beginning of the series. Say that with me. God, man, Jesus, response. And though we finish our study on man, uh, looking at man, uh, with some tough words, I promise you will be awesome. You do not want to miss next week. You need to come back to here because we may end a little bit on a downer here, Okay. But next week, it gets a whole lot better, so, so don't stay home, all right? So let's, let's pray for God's grace as we get started. Father in heaven, I pray that the Holy Spirit comes and leads us in the truth to be very, very real with ourselves this morning. I pray that you break our pride and cut through how self-centered we are to cut us down and break us so that we may find our ultimate joy in Christ. In His name we pray, amen. I'm guessing most of you don't like to visit the dentist. I don't. My teeth are nothing spectacular, I assure you of that. They are pretty straight, naturally, but they're brittle. Years ago, I was in, um, in Lidditz. I was a teenager, I believe, with my grandmother Good. And uh, I was eating these little conversation hearts. Do you know what I'm talking about? At uh, Valentine's Day, you get these things, and they were stale. Grandma must have had them for seven years. I don't know. So I I start picking the conversation hearts, and I'm eating them. And um, it it seems to be a little crunchier than normal. And I'm like, I spit it out in my hand and notice pieces of a tooth that had just crumbled. And, uh, and so I don't know what I did from there, but I do know I, I went to the dentist. I eventually got a cap on my tooth. It just crumbled. I, I have pretty brittle teeth. When our teeth are in trouble, we need dentists because they help us understand and deal with the problem before it gets much worse. They restore mouthpiece. You get that? Mouthpiece? It's lame. I know. I'll move on. Well, oftentimes dentists have that little weird light that, uh, it's, that's hanging overhead and they shine it in your mouth so they can get a good diagnostic of uh, what's going on in your mouth. Well, this morning, God is going to shine a light directly on us. 
on our heart to see what's inside of us. And the diagnosis, I'm just going to tell you up front, is really bad. Um, But the good news is it can be fixed. Everyone can see that we are not okay. We are not okay. No matter how enjoyable your life is, you recognize things are broken. This is not the way that it should be. When I was in seminary, I bought a... uh, a 1985 four-wheel drive Ford F-150. This truck was sweet. It, uh, it had one of those long stick shifters that went to the floor. It uh, had extra big springs. I, I'm not a real car guy, but it had springs in the back that it would uh, amp up the towing capacity. And what was really cool about that is it pushed the back end up a little bit. It looked, the truck just looked cool. It even had this little foot-activated uh, high and low beams that was on the floor. I was like, this truck is awesome. It was great for about an hour. Because I went from the notary back across Pittsburgh, and uh, I pulled it into the driveway of the seminary, and I put it into park, and I pushed the e-brake, and it snapped. This is within the first hour. Well, from there, I drove it back for some reason later on to Lancaster County, and my sister-in-law's dad checked it out in Strasburg. He's a great mechanic. The whole thing was basically made out of rust. I mean, it, it, was, it was horrible from the moment that I got it. Where has paradise gone? Where are good trucks? Something is wrong, and we know it. Many things are broken, but you know what? People are broken too. Through what was called the Great Leap Forward campaign, Mao Zedong of communist China was said to have slaughtered upwards of 45 million people. We are not okay. And you might say, well, that's pretty radical. You had to go to a a communist dictator. But if you look closely enough at yourself, you'll find similarities We destroy people in our thoughts, with our words, with our passive-aggressive behavior, manipulating others for our own benefit. We hurt people. We are greedy. We are angry. We are possessive and impatient people. If the guy in front of us at a green light doesn't take off like a NASCAR driver, we get impatient and we're on the horn. What is wrong with us? We are broken and we are not okay and we know it. We all feel an ache inside because something isn't right. We lost something and we want to know how to get it back. We feel an internal conflict and we interpret that ache in different ways. I'd be okay if I just had more money. I'd be okay if I just had a boyfriend. I'd be okay if I had another boss. I'd be okay if my relationship with my parents or or my co-workers was better or whatever. But none of those things assess that ache properly. We ache because our relationship with God is broken. Many times we attempt to numb this pain of that ache with other things, but nothing works. We are not okay. And we have to go back many years to understand what the problem is. And the story begins with God making a covenant with us. God made a covenant with us. A covenant is simply a binding agreement or a contract between two or more people with certain defined terms. A covenant is a relationship. 
Marriage is a covenant. And if the terms of that covenant are broken in any way, the relationship is violated and consequences ensue. God set up a covenant with Adam and Eve with clear terms and consequences. Theologians call it the covenant of works. The covenant of works. Now, where do we find this in Scripture? Take a look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God sets the covenant with man, and he establishes the term. God promised to give life. God promised to give fantastic and unparalleled happiness to Adam on condition of perfect righteousness, perfect obedience to him. If Adam disobeyed in any way, he would surrender his favorable relationship with God. He would surrender his true righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, even life itself, in exchange for death and separation and condemnation from God as his righteous judge and enemy. If the covenant was broken, the relationship would immediately change. You can see the covenant works in Leviticus 18.5 as well. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Look at Romans 10.5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The arrangement was simple. Listen and live, disobey and die. The Westminster Confession puts it succinctly. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works in which life was promised to Adam and in him to his descendants on condition of perfect and personal obedience. So God basically said, obey me and I will bless you with life and perfect happiness and best of all, I will give you the gift of myself to enjoy But if you break our relationship, I must tell you, you're going to die. Now you may ask, what authority does God have to make a covenant with us? And he doesn't even give us a chance to negotiate the terms of the contract. Well, I hope that if you thought about that a little bit, I hope you'd be able to give an answer. A sufficient answer. But if not, I'll help you out a little bit. If you remember back to the previous weeks, God is sovereign and omnipotent and good, the creator and owner of everything, including us, and he made us for his glory and purpose. Therefore, he sets the terms because he is God. He is good, therefore his covenant of works is good. He is holy, therefore his covenant of works is holy. He is perfectly joyful, so obeying his covenant of works will yield joy and reward. God is all-knowing, loving, and trustworthy, and so we know that God gives us the best. Though his covenant was good and promised perfect happiness, we broke God's covenant. We broke it. We saw the sign that read, keep off the grass, and we marched right out onto it and had a party on the grass. 
We disobeyed God. We sinned. And sin is a popular word. You see it in our culture. You see it in advertisements, in music, in movies, in books. It's not an exclusively religious term. But do we really understand what sin is? What is sin? One definition reads like this. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. I saw a sign online. I thought it was pretty funny. It read like this. Please be safe. Do not stand, sit, climb, or lean on fences. If you fall, animals could eat you, and that might make them sick. Thank you. So they, mu- so they must have had this outside of a pen for animals of some sort. Now look, the, the point of that sign is clear, and it actually communicates it really effectively. Don't touch the fences. We don't want you climbing all over the fence. If you do, bad things could happen. I don't know if there were wolves on the other side or a bear. I don't know. But sin, therefore, is failing to obey the sign. Worse yet, it's defying a covenant relationship. You know, it's more than ignoring the sign. It's being unfaithful to a loving Father God. Here's how Cornelius Plantinga explained it. Long quote. It's in your bulletin. Quote, The Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness. Expressed in an array of images, sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. End of quote. It's about relationship. It's about breaking that. You know, sin is also idolatry. Eating the fruit was essentially Adam and Eve replacing God with themselves. His leadership for their leadership. Their sin made the statement, we want something other than you, God. They did what God called evil in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So we know that sin is turning from the pure and cool mountain spring water of God that gives eternal life and refreshment to the soul, and it's digging a hole filled with this murky and bacteria-infested water of worldly pleasures, and it's drinking and lapping up this sand and dirt, drinking ourselves to death. Sin is finding ultimate refreshment and delight in anything other than God himself. Why do we do this? Because we do that. We forsake him and the refreshment that he gives and the joy that he gives. Why? Highlight this. 
Highlight this. We are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. Let me explain that. I'm impressed by tigers. I think tigers are impressive, beautiful, majestic creatures, very powerful. And tigers happen to be born carnivores. They hunt by instinct. Why? Because they're tigers. Now, we can go about eating steak and meat, and we can hunt, uh, but that doesn't make us a tiger. Their nature makes them a tiger. Their DNA makes them a tiger. And we find in the Bible and our personal experience that our nature is sinful. Sin is our DNA. A tiger hunts because he's a tiger. A man sins because he's a sinner. And this is called original sin or the sinful nature and guilt that Adam passed to all of us. We are born sinful, guilty under the law. Our thoughts, affections, and choices are all corrupted by sin. We no longer possess that true righteousness and holiness and knowledge. Then you have what's called actual sin, and this is what we do because of our nature. Now, where do we find this in the Bible? Look at Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Pretty eye-opening. Later in Genesis 8, 21, God said the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The prophet Jeremiah wrote that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus himself said in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. slander. Actual sin, the things that we do, is only a symptom. The disease is in our heart. The origin of actual sin is the sinfulness of the heart. Paul told the Christians in Rome, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. A little later in the same letter, Paul wrote, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. He then continues in chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Then Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus that before they trusted in Jesus Christ, they were dead in the trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These are eye-opening words. Without faith in Jesus Christ, without God's grace activated in your heart, you are by nature a child of His divine wrath. Original sin is our original nature. Actual sin is what we do. And our actual sin comes in two varieties. Sins of commission and sins of omission. They might be new terms to you, so let me define them. A sin of commission is doing something. You do something. Um, 
A sin of omission is not doing something. So when you steal, it's a sin of commission. Okay, you committed the sin of stealing. You did something that you should not have done. Sins of omission are different. The Bible says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. So if you fail to delight yourself in the Lord, you are committing a sin of omission. You're failing to do something that God calls you to do. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So guys, guess what? If you don't love your wife like Christ loved the church, you are committing the sin of omission. You're failing to do what he has asked you to do. Understand one more important point about sin. That sin is so deep within us that without Christ, even our best conduct is sinful. You could build orphanages in Africa for homeless children, but without love for Christ, though it is great for the kids, you still can't please God. It is impossible to please God without Christ. Now, I know that that's radical, and so I I need to show it to you in the Scripture, or else don't believe it. Here's what Isaiah said in 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Without Christ, our righteous deeds, our best day, is like a filthy, old, grubby garment, not acceptable to God, not pure to God. Without Christ, our righteous deeds are nothing. We can give all that we have, We can sacrifice all that we have. But 1 Corinthians 13.3, very famous passage, says, Without love for God, it counts for nothing. If I give away all I have, Paul writes, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, Christ is the righteousness that comes by faith. He makes us acceptable to God, not what we do to try to earn God's approval. Romans 14, 23 says these striking words, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever doesn't come from faith in Jesus Christ is sin. Sin, missing the mark. Going your own way, even if it benefits humanity. And we got to understand, because I think a lot of people misunderstand this, Christianity is not merely about reforming someone's behavior. Because the root of sin is the heart. The message of Jesus is not stop swearing, or don't do drugs, or don't live with your boyfriend, or don't get drunk, or even if you switch it, go to church, read your Bible, and pray. That's not the gospel. That's not the message of Christ. Changing external behavior is not enough because the heart is still unchanged. The core message of Christianity is this. Our heart, at the very core of who we are, is rebellious against an almighty God. And he calls us in that rebellion to come to Jesus Christ, to find our righteousness in him, to find our perfect record in him. 
to find the cross where he died in the place of sinners and by trusting in him, we are then counted as righteous? It's not about just reform what you're doing because the the situation and the problem goes so much deeper. And when Christ changes our hearts and gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, we want to stop swearing and using drugs. We want to stop living with our boyfriend and getting drunk. We want to come to church and study our Bibles and pray. And he gives us the power to do so willingly and joyfully. That's the gospel. Christ changes us. The gospel says Jesus is our righteousness. And when we see that we are broken, the beauty of the gospel tells us that God changes our hearts and gives us the Holy Spirit. And so we joyfully live for him. He exchanges a cold, dead heart of stone, immovable, impenetrable, with a soft heart, moldable heart of flesh. More on that to come next week. Our sinfulness is really, really serious. Breaking God's covenant has serious consequences. Now you might be thinking, does God really care about a little white lie? Does he really care if I look but I don't touch? What's the big deal? I mean, at least I didn't. I'm not as bad as. And that kind of attitude fails to recognize the magnitude of God's holiness God is infinitely holy, so any deviation, however insignificant it may appear to you, is infinitely offensive to God. And if God overlooked any deviance whatsoever, he would cease to be God and cease to be good. Would the Steelers accept a 300-pound wide receiver who ran the 40-yard dash in 15 seconds could hardly bench press 120 pounds and caught the ball about 30% of the time. That's not who they're looking for. Tomlin's not going to take that. In fact, if Tomlin accepted that, he would not be a great coach. He would be a former coach. They would fire him. That's not who he's looking for. Coaches are looking for perfection. How much more with God? Jesus told us, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God told Abraham, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. God told Israel, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now why is sin such a big deal? It's a big deal because the holiness of God is a big deal, and sin is treason against his holiness. Do you remember the story, the history of David and Bathsheba? Messy story. Here you have David lusting after this woman, calls her to him. He sleeps with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. She was married. She became pregnant. David had Uriah killed and then took Bathsheba as his wife. That's a terrible story. David sinned against a whole bunch of people in that story. It was a complete mess. Now watch how David approaches his sin. This is why sin is so serious. After David created this mess, he writes Psalm 51, a song to God in worship and in the spirit of repentance. And this is what David sings. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Are you kidding me? God only? 
He left a wake of destruction. A lot of people. What about, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about their families? Here's what I think David was trying to get across. However destructive his sin was to others, the real tragedy, the, the pinnacle of it all was sinning against a holy and almighty God. Sin is serious because God is offended. Absolutely sin destroys us. Absolutely sin destroys other. We don't want to minimize the painful impact of sin among us. But more than that, God's holiness is assaulted. And when God is small, insignificant to you, then offending him doesn't really seem like a big deal. You'll be okay with your sin because God's really not that great to begin with. But if you see God as he really is, infinitely holy and righteous and good, then you understand why your sin is so serious. You understand why your offense is so serious. Greg Gilbert, in his little book, I recommend that you get it, it's called What is the Gospel? This is what he writes, quote, When Adam and Eve bit into the fruit, therefore, they weren't just violating some arbitrary command, don't eat the fruit. They were doing something much sadder and much more serious. They were rejecting God's authority over them and declaring their independence from Him. Adam and Eve wanted to be, as the serpent promised them, like God. So both of them seized on what they thought was an opportunity to shed the vice regency and take the crown itself. In all the universe, there was only one thing God had not placed under Adam's feet, God Himself. Yet Adam decided this arrangement was not good enough for him, and so he rebelled. Sin communicates to God, not your authority, my authority. Not what you say, what I say. God graciously told Adam and Eve, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, does that seem extreme? I don't think so. Because the punishment must match the offense Good judges don't give $20 fines to drunk drivers for killing people in head-on collisions. Good judges don't give five hours of community service, uh, service to serial killers. Good and fair judges give sentences that fit the crime. And since God's holiness and righteousness are infinite, any fault at all is infinite offense against His infinite justice and must carry an infinite sentence. God is only good and just if His judgment against sin is appropriate to His holiness. Therefore, the sentence for sin is death. Well, what is death? It's physical, absolutely, but it's spiritual as well. Our bodies will die, but death is eternal torment in hell. God created hell infinitely bad to match the infinite crime committed against His infinite holiness. Just read your Bibles Jesus said a lot about hell. Sometime look up Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 25. Hell is clearly real, it's horrible, it's forever, and every covenant breaker who rejects Jesus will suffer there because of their sin. Check out what Jesus lovingly said in Matthew 13, 40 through 42. Just as the weeds 
are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus, the perfectly loving human being that never did anything that was unloving, telling us exactly what Sin, uh, sin and ends in hell, what hell is all about. Jesus described hell in, Ma- in Mark 9, 48 as a place where worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is terrible and it exists for lawbreakers. And what I want you to see is that breaking God's covenant is dreadfully serious and has unfathomable consequences. My dear friend, Pastor Hopper, used to say this to us. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. But the gospel is better than you know. This is heavy stuff. We are much worse than we think. Our condition is very, very serious. And like a good dentist, God shines the light of his word on us and shows us the cavity the black and hollow parts of our heart and our soul. So make sure that you remember one thing from this sermon. If you forget everything else, make sure you get this, that without faith in Christ, you are guilty and stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. End of story. You are headed for hell without Jesus. Your heart is much worse than you think it is. And it's really good news that you hear that message as hard as it may be. Here's how a sermon like this, I think, can really help you. How much do you crave and appreciate dentists? Well, maybe not that much until your toothache becomes so bad you don't know what to do and you go to the dentist and you find out that there is a solution that we can do something about this, that you are not stuck with that toothache. We're going to clean it out. We're going to purify this. We're going to fill it up. And that pain, it's going to go away in time. If you treat sin lightly, if you minimize it, you won't find Jesus very exciting because you don't recognize your need for him. You'll probably think that you're doing okay on your own without a need for a savior. But if you let God's word land hard on your heart, then Jesus is going to be very, very compelling and sweet to you because what he offers to you and what he does for you. He'll be very refreshing. You'll be desperate for him. Not only that, you will run to him and be satisfied in him and delight in him. You will find the delight and pleasure of your soul in Jesus when you realize what he can do for you to take care of your sin. What I hope this sermon produces in you is a deep recognition of your sin, a pain because of your sin, a discomfort, almost a despair at the depth of how terrible you and I are. And then, in your desperate need for Christ, may he change your heart so that you delight in him most, your Jesus Christ, as Lord, Savior, and treasure. How can our relationship with God, our paradise which has been lost, be restored? Well, we'll answer that next week. This is why you can't just end here because there's more to the story and you don't want to miss out, but... Let's have just a little taste now, shall we? 
through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus can restore for you the paradise that you turned your back on and walked away from. And he pulls you back by his grace. Jesus is next time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, for your very clear and convicting word from your scripture. We know we're messed up. We don't even need the Bible to to say that because we can see that things are broken. Even those who don't believe in the Bible, they can see that they're broken and that things are broken. But your Bible comes to us in a very special way. You have revealed yourself to us through your divine word. And we can read it and say, yes, that is me. Yes, I am that bad. And yes, there is a glorious solution, and his name is Jesus Christ. I pray that these biblical words penetrate each person here to lead them to a humility and a repentance and a trust in Jesus Christ because on their own, they can't handle the problem of sin. We all fail. We all fall short of the glory of God. But your fantastic promises in your word are clear. And so I pray, God, that you do your work in this church, in this community of Mannheim and Lidditz and the surrounding areas, God, that the gospel would go forth on our lips, that we would spread the message of what Jesus has done, not only for us, but what he can do for others. God, grow Jerusalem church in maturity of the word to thirst and hunger for righteousness and your word, and I pray that we also can be faithful in evangelism and that you will bring people to our church and that we can see lives changed because of this message. And may we wait with a little bit of tension, not too much, but a little bit till next week, God, till we see Jesus unfolded in remarkable, brilliant glory. In his name we pray, amen.